if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I am uh, the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. So glad you're here. And today, as I launch into the the teaching, I want to begin by encouraging you to think exaltation. Think exaltation. So uh, today we're celebrating the ascension of Jesus into heaven. In Christian tradition, Ascension Day marks the 40th day of Easter, or 39 days after Easter Sunday. Some Christians celebrated Ascension Day this past Thursday. Many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are celebrating it today. It makes sense to me to observe the Ascension as close as possible to 40 days after Easter and seven days before Pentecost Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week. And I'll get into that here in a few moments. What is key, though, is not... Uh, exactly the right day to celebrate Ascension Day, of course, but rather why the Ascension is important and its relevance to our lives. And that's what I'm going to focus on here for the next 40 minutes or so. Emphasis on or so. So a lot of Scripture today. My methodology is going to be quite simple. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture about this subject, and I'm going to comment as much as I'm able with whatever limited understanding I have to... uh, try to explain what it means and why it's important to our lives. You know, if you've been around TLCC any length of time at all, you know that we'll, I, I will and others of our team will teach in different ways at different times uh, according to what we feel like the need is at that time. So, you know, we just finished a felt needs kind of topical series about how to write a better story with your life. Sometimes we'll do an expository teaching where we take a section of Scripture and dig into it. And today I'm taking kind of a big theological topic, and uh, we'll use Scripture uh, primarily throughout the New Testament to, to, to explain uh, what, what we believe about this, but, but also why it's important. So here's the classic text on the ascension. It's Acts chapter 1. Jesus has uh, 40, uh, uh, 50, well, let, let me say it like this. 40 days prior to, to, to this, what I'm about to write, Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now he's about to ascend to heaven. And here's what Luke writes in his Uh, In his biography of the early Christian church, he says, After his suffering, Jesus, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days... You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, presumably angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, this isn't what I'm going to talk about today, but if you want to know what the second coming is going to look like, it's going to look like that. He's going to come back in the same way he left. It's not going to be a secret. 
It's going to be something the world is able to see. But anyway, we'll save that for another time. So today, I want to talk about the ascension, but I also want to connect the ascension to Pentecost, which is what happens here in this text. Just before he ascends, Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. There's an important linkage between the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that brought power to the followers of Jesus and launched the Christian church. Now, I want to remind you of something I've been teaching about quite a bit in recent months because I've, 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 I've come to the, to the conclusion that most Christians need to be re-gospeled. And so, so let me remind you that the gospel is the announcement of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. Let's dig into this for a moment, and I'm saying this just kind of as an introduction to, to my introduction, and then I'll get into the, 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 the meat of the matter. When we talk about the life of Jesus, we're talking about the fact that Jesus came to this planet to live and to bring us life. Scripture teaches that Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, God in flesh, in the person of a man, was and is the source of life itself. John chapter 1 tells us that through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Many times you will hear people say that Jesus came to die. And that's true, but it's only part of the truth. The point of his death was to give us life. Life in all of its fullness, more and better life than you ever dreamed of. And through his life, Jesus came to give us life and to show us how to live in relationship with the Father and in relationship with the world around us. Then there's death. Death was a necessary evil. The cross was a means to an end. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins, and he then entered death so that he could defeat death, and so he could give us, thank you, life. And the reason we know that we can have the life that he wanted for us is because of the resurrection. Death could not hold him. He was in the state of death for three dark days. But then he was raised from death to life, and then 40 days later he experienced the exaltation. Exaltation is a term that is used to describe what happened when Jesus ascended to heaven and was enthroned in heaven. Some Christian traditions use the term ascension and session, which is to say that he ascended to heaven and now he is in session, sitting enthroned in heaven or sitting, in many, as many texts say, at the right hand of God, which I'll talk about here in a moment. But uh, many Bible uh, commentators say that the, the best word to use to describe all of that is the word exaltation. And as you'll learn, probably it will leak out here in a few moments. I don't think we talk enough or think rightly enough about what it means that he is exalted. See, 
the state of being that Jesus is in now, for lack of a better way of describing it, the state of being that Jesus is in now is a state of glory. Okay? So when Jesus went to the cross, he knew that what he was about to accomplish through his death and resurrection would result in his glorification. It occurred to me this week, I've been teaching uh, for 40, more than 40 years. Started teaching at two years old. I've been teaching for more than 40 years, and I don't think I have ever done a message on the glorification of Jesus. And I'm sorry, and I apologize for that, and you'll probably hear a lot of this in the future because I've come to understand how incredibly important this is. As Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, a lot of what he talked about, particularly in the Gospel of John, where the night before he went to the cross is detailed in, in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. There's a lot said about this. A lot of what Jesus talked about is how that through his death, he was going to be able to be, and then his resurrection, he was going to be able to be glorified. John chapter 13, the night before he died, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. And he goes on talking about that kind of thing, talking, everything he's saying is in this context that he's about to be glorified, and when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to the Father before uh, Judas and his buddies showed up, this is part of what he prayed. He looked toward heaven, John 17, and prayed to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. When Jesus died on the cross and then entered death and was raised from the dead, he somehow was in a new state of being. That's not a theological term. That's an attempt I'm making to describe this. He was in a new state of being called glorification. He was glorified. There's this amazing encounter in the garden after Jesus is raised from the dead. Most of you will remember it. Mary Magdalene, who was, had been very close to Jesus, is in the garden, and all of a sudden she sees who, what she thinks is the gardener. But when Jesus speaks to her, she realizes it's Jesus raised from the dead, and she rushes over to him, and evidently she embraces him. And when she embraces him, Jesus said, John 20, 17, do not hold on to me, for I am not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. As Jesus is standing there with Mary now, there's an understanding that something has fundamentally changed in their relationship, and the relationship that she's going to have with him heretofore is a relationship that's going to be made possible through him completing what he came to do, which includes now his ascension and enthronement in heaven. Mary, I love you, but don't hold on to me. I'm not done doing what I need to do. Go tell your, the, the other guys I'm about to ascend to my Father. This is very important. Don't keep me from the next step in my life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. And so Jesus now is glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? Like a lot of things I'll talk about today, language is 
incapable of fully describing it. Frankly, my mind is incapable of fully comprehending it, but I'm going to give you the best I've got here, okay? W.E. Vines, in his, in his wonderful expository dictionary of New Testament words, talks about what it means to be glorified. And he says that the glory of God is the revelation and manifestation of all that he has and is. When predicted of Christ, it means simply that his innate glory is brought to light, is made manifest. As Jesus now stood in the garden post-resurrection, pre-ascension, he now is in a, is in a, in a place where he is able to fully manifest the glory of God without the constraints of pre-resurrection humanity. Jesus is now able to fully manifest, I'll say it again in another way, who he is, his innate glory, without the constraints of his pre-resurrection reality. He is fully human, but post-resurrection human, meaning he can fully manifest all that he is as God now. Perhaps a nice way to think about this is that he's now a fully realized human being while being fully God. See, through the incarnation, Jesus had accepted certain self-limitations. Right? Though he was God, he was living in a body that was limited as a result of the fall. He decided to do that. He didn't have to do that. It was a choice that he made. But his, his body, for instance, could be wounded, right? And was. His body, for instance, could be killed, right? And was. But now, through his defeat of death, he and his body are in a new state of being called glorification. He was now glorified with the glory that he had with the Father since before the world began, though living in a human body. Things had changed forever. Peter wrote to the, to the church in the first century and said, through Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So Jesus is now fully God and fully man, but in a glorified state. I like what the great N.T. Wright said. He said Jesus is totally and truly human, and he's, he's, he was and he still is. Jesus is our man in heaven, said N.T. Wright, considered by many to be the greatest scholar in the New Testament alive today. He said the one who lived our life and died our death has now been exalted and glorified precisely as a human being. God has put a human being at the helm of the universe. Now, Jesus still has a body, but it's glorified. He gets to experience the best of humanity. For instance, he, after his resurrection, made quite a point of eating and drinking so that his disciples could see that he was still human being, a human being, and he had a body. But he now wouldn't and couldn't and is incapable of in his this new glorified reality of experiencing the worst of what it means to be human he could no longer be affected by sin or the sins of others by sickness by death which he had obviously been affected by in his pre-resurrection state why why is this true because through his death and resurrection he defeated sin and the evil powers that are the source of the worst of humanity 
And by the way, though this isn't my topic today, this is going to be our reality, at least to some extent I'll explain, after the second coming of Christ. It is. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lower bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's awesome, isn't it? That's what... The future looks like for us. Now I say we're going to be like him, which is a point that's made in other places in the New Testament uh, in, in, in the age to come. But, but obviously we're not, we're, we're, there's a, there's a, we can't say we're going to be exactly like him because we aren't him. There's only one of him, and he sits enthroned as the Lord of the universe. But our lowly bodies, our pre-resurrection bodies are going to be transformed like his was to glorious bodies and we're going to live as fully realized human beings in the age to come. I probably should do a whole sermon on that someday, shouldn't I? But I digress. Another way to say this is in alignment with Christian theology that Jesus moved from humiliation to exaltation. When you study this, you study the theology around this, this is one way that this whole progression of the gospel is, is discussed, that Jesus moved from humiliation to exaltation. When we talk about humiliation, we talk about the incarnation. I mean, the God of the universe becomes a fetus in the womb of, a, of the Virgin Mary. So, and then he, the God of the universe... You know, he, he, he's a human being, and he lives as a human being uh, on this planet for 33 years, constrained by a human body because he chose to. It's the humiliation. We talk about the humiliation, we talk about the incarnation. We talk about the death. We talk about the burial of Jesus. But then we have to talk about the exaltation. We talk about the resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement. We talk about the future second coming of Jesus in glory and power to consummate all things. But what's important for me, for us to understand, I believe, is that his present reality is exaltation, and I don't think we talk about that enough. Philippians 2 verse 7, Pastor Ryan read it a few moments ago. Here you hear the progression from humiliation to exaltation. Jesus made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, the whole thing is true, but I think some people talk about Jesus and Christians as if they feel sorry for Jesus and Christians. Poor Jesus. They focus on the humiliation, but the humiliation is only part of the story. It's only part of the truth. We also have to think exaltation, which is the present state he is in. 
Jesus is not in a perpetual state of dying. Some members of the Christian family, and I love all members of the Christian family. I, I have high regard for people from all kinds of different Christian denominations, and, and we're a non-denominational church, and I like to honor wherever someone may come from. But certain uh, 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 streams of the Christian family will focus on Jesus as, 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 as always hanging on the cross. It's, it's, it's a crucifix mentality, which, which in its proper place as part of the story is essential and beautiful and important. But, but here's the reality. Jesus died over the course of three hours. He was in death for three days. But in eternity past, he was the source of life itself. In present reality, He's raised from the dead, glorified, ascended to heaven, and sits enthroned above the universe. Don't feel sorry for him. Worship him. John said, John was at the cross. He saw him die. He saw this brutal crucifixion, which was necessary, absolutely necessary, obviously, for our salvation. John witnessed. He's the only disciple there. But then he's, later he's on a place called the Isle of Patmos, and he has this vision. And he says in this vision, he said, he said I looked, and before me there was a door standing open in heaven. Now remember, what, what part of John's visual is, is, in his memory is he sees Jesus on the cross. Now, years later, and he also sees Jesus after the resurrection. Now, years later, he says, I have this vision. I see heaven open, and I see the way things really are. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Who is sitting on the throne? Well, obviously, Jesus is sitting on the throne. And John says, you know what? It's so amazing. I saw that there were these living creatures who were created to do nothing but praise him. And there were these four and 20 elders representing, uh, I think, the, the, the church there, uh, doing nothing but praising him. And he said, I saw Jesus on the throne. And these creatures, day and night, never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. That's the way things are now. He sits enthroned, fully realized, glorified human being, fully God, reigning over the universe. And I encourage us to have this kind of picture of our risen Savior in mind. He is exalted. Now, let me offer two reasons the exaltation of Jesus matters to us. This isn't comprehensive. There are a lot of things that could be said. These are two things that seem important to me to say today. Two reasons that the exaltation of Jesus matters to us. First of all, we have access to his power. We have access to his power. So let, let me read another scripture and kind of dig into this in a little different way. 
It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul prays. He prays that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians, these first century followers of Jesus, would be opened so they could see who Jesus is and who we are in him. Guys, if you feel passion coming from me, I know that's probably not unusual, but if you feel a unique passion coming from me today, it's because this is what I want for us. I want us to be able to see this reality with the eyes of our heart in a way that affects the way we live our lives, the way we see ourselves. We need a picture of Jesus as exalted and understand it impacts the way we live our lives. I'm not sure we're capable of totally comprehending this with our minds. This is something you comprehend with your heart. You kind of, you get it somehow. I guess in, in your spirit in some way where all of a sudden you see things differently. Okay, so Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted. I love that. When he raised Christ from the dead, I mean, God exerted his power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So he says, let me finish. In this same thought, then, Paul says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul saying? He said, I'm praying that you can see this. What do you want us to see, Paul? That Jesus was raised from the dead, and he sits now at the right hand of God. You see that language, by the way, a lot around the ascension, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. God actually doesn't have a right hand. God God is a spirit, correct? You don't know what to answer. Anyway, he doesn't have a right hand. Jesus has a right hand. But when when you see the the language about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, it's it's a metaphor for, again, lack of a better way to describe it. The the right hand through Scripture spoke of power. It spoke of authority. This was language that was commonly used during the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. So when we're told that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, it means that he is sitting in the place of power and authority, that that this this, this, uh, is, is... is where he now is at. And Paul says, I I want you to see him sitting at this place in heaven because of who he is in heaven, he has authority in the heavenly realms. You might remember this discussion from a couple of weeks ago. When you read in Ephesians the term heavenly realms, it's referring to the atmosphere the spirit of spirit reality around this planet. It refers to the atmosphere, the spirit realm in which we, we, we live. It's, we don't see it, obviously. It's something spiritual, but there's all kind of stuff going on in this, in this thing called the heavenly realms or the spirit realm. Now, it appears from my understanding, everything that, that, that I have studied about this, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, ascended to heaven that he literally ascended to sit in a, in a, in a real place called heaven, which someday is going to come down 
to earth. But nonetheless, he sits on a throne in heaven, and he is worshipped, and he is glorified, and so on. And that because of who he is in heaven, he has authority over everything in the heavenly realms. He has authority over everything that's happening in the, in the spirit realm, including over the evil powers of darkness that we're told uh, uh, do, try to do their evil work there in ways that influence our present reality. But, but also, not only does Jesus have authority in that realm, but through our faith in Jesus, we are raised with Christ, and we sit with him in heavenly places or in this heavenly realm, which means that we have authority in that world as well because of who Jesus is. We should be able to tap into the new reality that exists because he is Lord of all, and he's our Lord, and our faith is in him, and his presence is in us, and we should be living in a way where we exercise power and authority over all the yucky stuff going on in the realm of spirit that affects our lives. We should not be afraid of evil powers. Evil powers should be afraid of us because of who he is and who we are in him. See, one of the things I try to do is teach a robust Christianity. I am so weary of people feeling sorry for Jesus and people feeling sorry for Christians and for Christians feeling sorry for themselves. We're just these poor little people down here who's such trouble that we had to find a crutch and believe in Jesus, and we're just kind of trying to be good people till he comes back, and it's so hard, and the world's so rough, and oh, it's so hard to follow Jesus, and I just don't hardly know if I could just make it another day. Oh, I'm going to hold the fort because Jesus is coming. That's the song we used to sing when I was a kid. We're just going to hang. That's not a proper view of what it means to follow Jesus. He is exalted. We have been raised together to sit with him. We are supposed to be walking humbly before God, but assertive in this world, bringing the reality that exists in heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. How are things in heaven? He's sitting on the throne. I'm sorry for yelling so much. As I dig into several more scriptures and as I'm about to go grossly over time, you can leave, by the way, whenever you want. If you're walking out the door, I'll, I'll say, the Lord bless you and keep you. <laughs> Computer screens are going off all over the country. I, I, I couldn't help, I thought about this this morning, as I'm going to dig now into another scripture and teach it a little bit, and then another big concept before we finish. 
I'm, I'm reminded of when I was a, a, a very young preacher, early 20s. I was invited back on several occasions to speak in the church I grew up in. A large church in Indianapolis, Indiana it was a big deal to me to be able to go back. And obviously, I, I, as a, especially as a young guy, I needed the affirmation of these people who'd raised me. And, 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 and one Sunday night, which Sunday nights were the really big service in those days, I, I got up and I preached my heart out, and there was a good response. I probably preached about an hour, which wasn't unusual in those days. I want you to know I've really cut it down, disciplined myself. Uh, and, and I felt it was a good response, and afterwards, one, one of the elders of the church came up to me, who, who I revered, and, and uh, you know, I'm w- waiting to see if he's going to say something nice or not, and he says, you know what, you really fed us meat tonight. He said, that was steak. But he said, Terry, you don't have to give us the whole cow. I have never quite gotten over trying to give people the whole cow every week, and I'm kind of sorry for that, and I'm kind of not sorry for that, but here's a little bit more of the cow. You ready? It's Ephesians 4, verse 7, which says, now, that to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. To each of us. Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And he quotes there from the 68th Psalm, which was a psalm that was read in the liturgical calendar at the the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost by uh, 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 Jews at that time. I I was going to get into that, but I'm not going to have time. Anyway, he quotes from the 68th Psalm. When he ascended on high, took many captives and gave gifts to his people, and then Paul parenthetically asked a rhetorical question, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the humiliation, is the very one who ascended, exaltation, higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So he, he uses this, this incredible language that, that connected the minds of the people at his time to the image of a conquering hero coming back from battle after having taken land somewhere. So this is the first century. It's the time of the Roman emperors. If you've ever been in Rome, you'll see the great uh, uh, um, uh, avenue where conquering Roman generals or emperors would come back from conquering a land, and they would have a procession. And this happened also centuries before in other cultures. This was something very well known at that time. They'd have a procession where the conquering hero would come marching back to screaming crowds. And as the marching, as the conquering hero came marching back, in his train would be captives and gifts. The captives were the people he had captured. So here would come this Roman emperor, maybe riding on a great big stallion, or maybe marching, and people are screaming, and he'd be you know, in exaltation. But behind him would come a conquered king shuffling, shuffling along, perhaps in shackles, and probably on his way to a very unpleasant end. And then following that guy and the other captive would then come the spoils that had been won from the land that had been conquered. So these would be gifts. Sometimes there'd be blocks of procession where people are carrying the things that they'd gotten out of the conquered guy's palace or, or out of their religious temples or whatever. And the, the, the captives would be punished, but the gifts would be distributed 
to the people who were loyal to the emperor. Do you, do you understand? So maybe, maybe not. So here's the image that Paul has in mind when Jesus ascended to heaven. He ascended to heaven, he says. What's he say? He says, um, do we still have that passage up? Ephesians chapter 4. He says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people, which is to say that when he ascended to heaven, one aspect of it is that he's defeated the evil powers. And the evil powers, as he ascends glory, to be welcomed to heaven are kind of you know, gotta imagine when Jesus saw Mary Magdalene in the Garden of Eden and Mary went to hug him and, and Jesus said, Don't don't hold me because I haven't ascended yet. You kind of have to imagine, I don't know that it was this way, but I have a vivid imagination that in the heavenly realm, in the world of the spirit, all around him were all these defeated powers. <laughs> and and Mary Jesus saying, Don't don't hold on to me. I gotta ascend to heaven. I'm gonna take captives. But then the other thing that he did is he takes the spoils of the victory, the gifts now that he he has and he gives them to his followers see and then paul goes on in this passage to talk about how that these gifts build us up to do the works of jesus on the planet so we need to understand that when we're talking about the ascension we're talking about a great victory that impacts us because he takes the victory that he won and he distributes to each of us What's what's called here? Gifts, which mean a variety of things that we don't have time to get into now. But gifts that allow us to live beyond our own human power in this world and access his power to do his good works on this planet. All right, here's the second thing. What was I talking about? Two reasons. Two reasons the exaltation of Jesus matters to us. Here's the second one. It's that his power comes primarily through the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the gift of the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit brings these other gifts into our lives. Okay? So one of the things that the glorification of Jesus made possible is that he was now able to gift his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to his followers in a way that had never happened before. Again, I don't claim to completely understand this, but somehow his glorification, this new reality that exists post-resurrection and, and in, in this exaltation, allowed him to send the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to indwell and empower his followers in a way that had never happened before his exaltation. Now, you'll see the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, sometimes coming on people and anointing people to do certain things, but... Now, Jesus is going to pour the Holy Spirit out and actually put it in his followers in a way that experientially had never happened before and um, um, in a way that had never happened before in, in any other way. In a way that couldn't happen until Jesus experiences glorification thing. So, John chapter 7, Jesus is visiting the Feast of the Tabernacles. And on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. It's pretty clear, right? Jesus, as he stood as a man, 
about, you know, in his early 30s, constrained by his human body, pre-resurrection, glorification, and ascension, could not yet pour out his spirit. In order to pour out his spirit, he had to die, he had to enter death, he had to be resurrected, and he had to ascend to heaven. And so this is one reason why Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross is, is, is conflating the idea of him being glorified with the idea of him now being able to pour his spirit out in a new way. John chapter 13, the night before he goes to the cross, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him, and in the same teaching that extends now for several chapters, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. He's talking about himself, obviously, but this is what he's saying. Right now, I'm standing here with you in the flesh of a man, but after I do what I'm about to do, guys, I'm going to be glorified, and when I'm glorified, I'm actually going to come and I'm going to live in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. Then when the Holy Spirit does come, Peter stands and he preaches his famous sermon. And part of what he does when he's explaining the gospel is he says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is why the ascension is connected to Pentecost. Because when Jesus ascended, he told them to now go wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in a way no one had ever received before and couldn't until he was glorified. So here, the last chapter of Luke which tells us the story of, of ascension. There's actually quite a bit here. Luke 24, verse 36. Here's another piece of the cow. Um, Jesus himself. So his disciples are standing there. Jesus has been raised from the dead. They're freaked out. They're Jesus sightings. They're standing there saying, I saw just somebody saw him. Somebody said this. Somebody said that. And they're having this conversation. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up in the midst of them and freaks, freaks them out more. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Somehow he's still in a human body, but it's different. It's glorified. He looks like he's traveling through walls and disappearing and appearing someplace else and things that hadn't happened in quite to the, that way pre-resurrection. So he's standing there and he says, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I am going, now here comes the connection between the ascension and Pentecost. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. I need to read that more slowly. I am going to send you, Jesus says, as he's getting ready to ascend to heaven, what my father has promised. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they 
said, oh no, this is so terrible. Jesus is, oh, oh my, he left us. This is, no, that's not what they did. That's not how Christians think, by the way. You always think about it. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. I mean, Jesus left, but he had told them he now was going to come back, indwell them, clothe them with power. That wasn't bad news to them. This was good news to them. This new state of being that Jesus enters through his exaltation allows him now to do things, to put his spirit in his followers. And so these guys and gals go wait in Jerusalem, just like Jesus said. And depending on how you do the math, it's actually a little confusing to me. Math was never my subject. Either seven or ten days after the ascension, the day of Pentecost came, and they were all together in one place, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And... These people are so ecstatic with this experience they've received that thousands of people started to gather around them. Somehow it spills out on the temple steps and people start accusing the people who've now been filled with the Holy Spirit and had these supernatural signs happen to them, none of which happened exactly in this way again, but yet when people fill the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts, there were signs that, that happened, but this was kind of unique. We don't see another example where there are tongues of fire, mighty rushing winds, or they're speaking in languages that people from around the world could understand understand which the the speakers had not spoken. We don't see that happen exactly that way again, though we do see the exercise of spiritual language when the Holy Spirit comes in somewhat of a normative way throughout the book of Acts. But nonetheless, these people are having this supernatural experience, and they're so ecstatic that the crowd that gathers think they're drunk. You remember that? And Peter has to stand up and say, they're not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody's drinking anything yet. These people have been filled with the Holy Spirit and it's such good news that you think that, that, that they're so ecstatic that they're drunk, but what they're drunk on is they're drunk on the Holy Spirit. And then he does a message where he explains the gospel. He talks about, if you read Acts chapter 2, he talks about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus. And when he finishes his message, he, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, maybe it was just to the people who were standing there at that moment, but no, that in fact wasn't the case. Peter goes on to say, The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I hope you can see that the ascension is connected to Pentecost because when Jesus ascended, he's now able to pour out the Spirit which people receive on that first Pentecost. Okay, I'm wrapping this thing up quickly. Let's talk about Pentecost because what I want to do now is I want to set us up for next Sunday, which is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is one of the three major annual festivals or feasts on the Hebrew calendar. The word Pentecost comes from the Greek word for 50. Pentecost is the feast that is celebrated 50 days after the last day of Passover, um, it's believe, the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. It's called by a variety of names actually throughout Scripture, but in the first century it was called Pentecost, which simply meant 50 days after Passover. The, 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 the Jews celebrate Pentecost as the feast 
uh, that celebrates when the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, when Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh and said, let us go so that we can have a festival to you. The Jews believe that that then was Pentecost. When they celebrate Pentecost, that's what they're celebrating. Christians celebrate the law coming through the Holy Spirit and being written on our hearts. Okay? So, so, uh, the, so uh, what happened on the day of Pentecost is that that people from all over the world came to celebrate this feast in Jerusalem. And uh, on the morning of Pentecost, they would gather at the temple and the priests would offer certain uh, uh, offerings and certain prayers. And the people would read through a portion of the Psalms called the Great Hillel and the 68th Psalm. And the whole city would be rocking with people praising God. And, and it was in this environment these, that these approximately 120 people who were, who, who were following Jesus were waiting with great joy, praising God, waiting for this promise of the Holy Spirit. And lo and behold, if God didn't keep his promise and the Holy Spirit came and filled them in such a way that it was uh, inexplicable, literally unable to be explained in human language, it was amazing. I think that there are two experiences with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I want you to think about this, and I want you to pray about the Holy Spirit this week as we lead towards Pentecost Sunday next week. I like to talk about it this way. I'm not ta- I nor no, anyone else can talk about this perfectly. It's, it's be, well, maybe there's somebody, no. Two experiences with the Holy Spirit. First of all, what I call regeneration. I believe that Scripture is clear that when we believe in Jesus, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, when you believe, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I believe that when we believe in Jesus, that we are indwelt, when we truly believe, we are indwelt by the Spirit. We come alive to God. We enter and see his kingdom, a world that we'd never seen before. But I also believe that Scripture is clear that there, are, that there is a subsequent for lack of a better term, baptism, or baptisms, if you please, of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that followers of Jesus indwelt with the Spirit have encounters, experiences of the Holy Spirit that empower them in, in, a, in a way where they can only be empowered like this by being immersed in the in the presence of Jesus. I like the term baptism in the Holy Spirit, and here's why. It's because that's what Jesus called what was going to happen in Acts chapter 2. He said, in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's how Peter described what happened at the household of Cornelius and in Acts chapter 2 at the birth of the church when Peter said the Holy Spirit came on them, those Gentile Christians now in, in uh, the household of uh, Cornelius as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord had said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But semantics are not important. You notice I'm talking really quick right here. It doesn't really matter that we call this Holy Spirit thing exactly the right name. I'm not sure there is an exact right name. There are different ways it's described in Scripture. This Pentecostal experience, this experience that happened on Pentecost, that happened throughout the early church in a way that we would describe it theologically as being normative, something we should expect, something we should believe for, something we should pray for. Here are some ways it's described. Acts chapter 2-4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2-17, 
I will pour out my spirit on all people. Acts 2.38, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.44-45, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The Holy Spirit had been poured out. Acts 11.15, the Holy Spirit came on them. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then you see these examples. Even in the, in the book of Acts, why are we talking about the book of Acts? Because it's a story of the early church. It's where we learn what was normal, what should be expected, what the experience was of those first followers of Jesus over about the first 50 years of the Christian church. And one of the things you see, interestingly enough, are people who had in, in this kind of baptism of the Holy Spirit would then experience something similar to it again at another time. Let's say Acts chapter 4, verse 4431, the same people who'd been in the upper room are now in a place where they're praying. And when they're praying, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I could talk about this all day. Obviously, I'm cutting the sermon short, even though it's been long. I've given you the whole cow. I'm about finished. Here's one more little piece. And it's to say that I think each of us should pray to be filled with the Spirit in the way that Jesus promised and that he's able now to give us because he ascended to heaven, he's exalted on high, the Father gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out so that Jesus can come and live in each of us in a way that can be described as powerful. Someone may say, if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, how can you be filled with more Holy Spirit? Well, you're thinking in human ways, not God ways. Don't think about a glass of water that's been filled up and water pouring out. It's limiting. Think about lungs. That, that can develop more capacity to breathe in more air. See, the fact is the Holy Spirit can fill us, and the Holy Spirit, even though we're filled, can fill us more. And what I encourage us as we approach Pentecost next week is that each of us pray, Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Whatever it is you do, whatever it is you now are in heaven to be able to give to your people so that we can access your power in our daily lives. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Please, if you would, uh, look at this little testimony from James Brady. Thanks, James, for sharing with us. And then I'm going to walk up and I'm going to say the benediction. And then if you want to stay for a worship song, you can, okay? I've, I think I officially now have preached longer than I have for years. Congratulations to all of you. All right. I'm James Brady. I've been coming to TLCC for about 10 years, and uh, I grew up in the Catholic Church, um, and I think I always had a hunger for God and an interest for God, but I didn't really understand how to experience God or really what that was like. But I feel that even from uh, a young age, I had a, a hunger to learn about God. Uh, as I grew up, as I went to college, I pretty much became an agnostic, um, and even in the years after college, uh, just no, no faith to speak of. Um, but I feel that the Holy Spirit was drawing me to Him uh, through different circumstances after meeting my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Then as, as time went on, my girlfriend and I, we got married. We had a beautiful daughter, Sophia, and kind of life got in the way. Um, I never lost my faith, but my thoughts were in other areas. My thoughts became negative, um, kind of focused on the challenges that my wife and I faced. Uh, and um, I was always interested in the Holy Spirit, 
and reading and, and hearing these amazing stories, but I thought, that could never happen to me. Uh, God's not gonna choose me. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not a good enough Christian. I have a past that I'm not so proud of, and uh, I'm not that important. So I remember hearing about Pentecost Sunday back in 2019, and I was definitely interested and intrigued to learn about the Holy Spirit and to kind of learn more in my faith walk. And uh, after hearing Phil Muncy speak that, that morning, there was the believers meeting at night, and uh, my wife and I and, and our daughter were interested in going. So after hearing the teaching that night, Pastor Phil Muncy offered for anyone to come up and he would lay hands on them. And uh, I was not interested in doing that because I was a skeptic. And I said, I don't know if that, that's real. I don't know if that could, uh, anything like that could happen to me where the Holy Spirit would, would talk to me. And, and uh, I would think that sometimes it's more for a show. Is it, is it real? Is it authentic? Um, so I didn't want to volunteer to go. But Phil Muncy offered for the children to come up to pray a blessing over the children. So as, as a proud dad, I said, let's definitely do that. So we, we went up and he prayed over my daughter and I thought we would just go back to our seats and that would be it. But he called me over and he asked if he could lay hands on me. And I said, sure, why not? As soon as he put his hands on me, I felt different. Uh, it was as if there was no one else in the room at that time. It was as if I couldn't hear the music and I immediately sensed the presence of God. And when he said to me that my thoughts are keeping me from God, that it's like a bridge between me and God, and I need to close that gap. Um, he had never known me. I hadn't talked to anyone about my, um, my struggles at the time, and it had to be a, a God thing. After that experience, I was completely overwhelmed with emotion. And Pastor Terry was there by my side with his arm around me, walking me through this experience. And, and I got the sense that he knew the Holy Spirit was active in that moment as well. I knew that this was real. This wasn't weird. It was um, private. It was beautiful, powerful. And it was as if God was speaking directly to me in a way that I'd never experienced before. I know that Phil Muncy is just a man, but God was using him to speak to me. Um, and my excitement from my younger days as a believer was, was back again in, in full force. And uh, I remember for the next couple days I had trouble sleeping because I was just so excited that God spoke to me. He chose me. Um, I never expected something like that to ever happen again.